This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. Johns County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and be turning with me to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. It's very important as we work through the book of Romans that you understand um, something that's sort of practical, and that is if your brain is turned off, it might be a little bit difficult to follow the Apostle Paul's arguments. Uh, Romans chapter 7 is perhaps the most controversial of all of the sections found in the book of Romans, aside from perhaps Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 deals with the sovereignty of God. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. But I think because I'm Reformed and because I'm a Calvinist, I think Romans 9 is pretty easy to understand. I think Romans 7 is a lot more difficult to understand and wrap our minds around. There are various times uh, each Lord's Day, in fact it happened um, this morning as a matter of fact, when I come early to the church and I'm here for a couple of hours looking over my sermon notes and I realize there's a a section in a certain book, a quote or a story or something of that nature that I want to pull out and put into the sermon sort of at the last minute and I realize that the vast majority of my library is at home. I only carry a few books here in the office with me, and so I have to get in my car and go home and track down that quote or that story and insert it into my sermon. And I think the Apostle Paul sort of operates that way as he writes this letter to the Romans. He's sort of going back and forth between talking about the law and talking about grace, and he's sort of moving and coming and going. He's trying to pull passages from the Old Testament, and he's making statements, and he's looking for ways to clarify the nature of the law and the nature of grace. He doesn't want anyone to think that he has a disrespectful understanding of the law. But at the same time, he doesn't want anyone to think that you can be saved by the law. And so he sort of goes back and forth looking for the proper statements to make that will add clarity to understanding the nature of sin, uh, the nature of total depravity, the nature of the law, and the nature of God's grace and how the gospel fits in with all of that. Here in Romans chapter 7, we want to pick up in verse 7. So if you stand to your feet in honor of the reading of God's word, we want to look at verses 7 through 13, and I'll read Read the passage, then we'll pray, and then we'll break it apart. Paul writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin 
and through the commandment might become sinful beyond all measure. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Please be seated. Let's ask him for help as we look at this text together. Father, we are grateful for your word because it's so clear. And yet at times, because of our frailty, because of our humanness, it's difficult for us to understand. We acknowledge that we are sitting at the feet of the great apostle, one of the smartest men who ever lived. But we also realize that he wrote under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That same Holy Spirit indwells us to aid us to understand this passage. And we pray that through the preaching of your word, you would provide clarity for us in our discussion of your law, that we might understand better who you are, that we might understand better who we are, that we might be drawn to Christ in a deeper way. We pray and ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As you well know, the Apostle Paul has been emphasizing the doctrine of justification really all the way back to chapter 4, and then he really defines it in chapter 5. But in order to support his argument for justification, that is that the sinner is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, he has along the way made statements about the law that show a great antithesis between the law of God and the grace of God. And if we are not careful, we could be misled to think that Paul thought the law itself is bad. In fact, he made statements like this. He said, for example, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through law comes the knowledge of sin. He says the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe, has nothing to do with obedience, in other words. He said this in chapter 4. He said, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, verse 3, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then he says in verse 4, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, doesn't try to obey God's law, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. He's using the example of Abraham who believed, and that's how Abraham was saved. He says in chapter 4, verse 13, that the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And that's why he says in verse 16 of chapter 4, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. So he's been describing the nature of God's law. He even says in chapter 5 and verse 20 that the law came for the very purpose to increase the trespass. That the law of God increased trespasses and sins. And he even said in chapter 5 that sin is not counted where there is no law. In other words, when the law of God is not clear, sin is not counted. So Paul has made Very strong remarks about the law of God in terms of defining our justification because he doesn't want us to think that we can earn our salvation by being obedient to God's law. However, as we moved into chapter 6, we saw that he has also made similar remarks about the imminency of the law with respect to sanctification. In fact, we saw last week that he actually compared the now believer to someone who was separated from the law of God. We used to be married to the law of God as separation has taken place, and now we are married to Christ. We've been released from our bondage to the law in that sort of abusive relationship where the law pounded us down. This seems to have a negative view of the law. 
In fact, if you look back at verse 6, Paul says, We are now released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. That's a pretty strong statement. He says in verse 1, Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? This also seems to be a negative statement about the law, that the law is there and we are to obey the law, but it only lasts as long as we live. And he even says in verse 4 that we have died to the law through the body of Christ. We have died to the law. There is a sense in which the law is dead to us and we are dead to the law. And of course, chapter 6 and verse 14 started this whole controversy when Paul said, sin will have no dominion over you as a Christian in your sanctification because you are not under law, but you are under grace. Seems to indicate that God's law has nothing to do with justification, but it also has nothing to do with sanctification. So where does God's law fit in? Well, this has led John Murray, the famous Reformed commentator, to say, and I quote, the antithesis between law and grace might appear to imply a depreciation of law as in itself bad. And I agree with Murray. It certainly appears that way. But you need to understand this morning that when Paul speaks about our release from being married to the law, when Paul speaks about that, he does not mean that the law has no good purpose in it whatsoever. His point is that after salvation, we serve God not because the law is our master any longer and we're forced to do it, but because Christ is our husband and we want to serve God. It's not because obedience leads to salvation, but just the opposite, that salvation leads to obedience. And so we serve, as Paul says, in the new way of the Spirit, not in the forced way of the letter or the written code of the law, which made us bondservants to a law we could never fulfill anyway. And Paul is clear in chapter 6, we are still slaves, but our master is now Christ, not the law, and our power is the Spirit. It's not the intimidating bondage of the law. In fact, he said in verse 22 of chapter 6, now that you've been set free from sin, you become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification. So we're still slaves, but we're not in bondage to the law of God. And so now Paul anticipates the charge of antinomianism. That is the idea, well, Paul, you don't care about the law of God. There's no importance of the law of God for a Christian. Paul anticipates that. He anticipates that people are going to take his words out of context. And so he sets out to defend God's law in verses 7 through 13. Now John Calvin has said that the principal end and use of the law is to invite men to God. The principal end and use of the law is to invite men to God, and I agree with Calvin. The purpose of the law... And a gospel presentation is to get us to see our sin so that we see our need for Christ. God has not left us in the dark. In fact, Isaiah 45 and verse 19, God says, I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. You see, by God speaking the truth, by declaring what is right, by giving to us his law, which flows from his holy character, we are then able to see the exceeding sinfulness of our sin and be drawn to Christ. So the law is a tutor that leads us to Christ. And Paul wants to develop that idea in verses 7 through 13. So in these verses, he simply gives a defense 
of God's law. And as we look at these verses, we want to consider some clarifying remarks about the law that Paul gives in verses 7 through 9. Secondly, we want to look at some concluding remarks about the law, which he gives in verses 10 through 13. And then we want to look at some confusing remarks about the law. So first, we want to look at some clarifying remarks about the law because Paul really clarifies some confusion. But then we want to look at some concluding remarks about the law because when Paul gets to the end of clarifying everything, he makes some concluding statements that really tie everything together. And then lastly, I want to look at some confusing remarks about the law. And in this last point, what I want to do is look at our culture and our society and give to you some confusing statements people often make about the law and then bring it back to the right in terms of what Scripture actually says. So let's look at Paul's defense of the law. We'll begin with some clarifying remarks about the law. Some clarifying remarks about the law. See this in verses 7 through 9, and Paul gives three clarifying remarks about the law. Let me list them quickly. First of all, he says the law points us to our sin. Secondly, it provokes us in our sin. And third, it pronounces us dead because of our sin. Notice the first clarifying remark. Paul says that the law points us to our sin. Verse 7, Paul says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Now here he's simply asking if there is any sense in which the law itself is sinful. That is, is the law in any sense responsible for creating or causing sin? And notice how Paul responds. He says, by no means. That phrase, by no means, is strongest negative in the Greek. Paul has used it now seven times in the book of Romans, may genatoi. And Paul is simply saying this is entirely out of question. God forbid that we should ever think that the law itself is sinful. In fact, Paul says quite the opposite is actually true when you think about it. Notice the rest of verse 7. He says, yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. We'll stop right there for a moment. The NASB translates that, on the contrary. On the contrary, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. The idea is that this is the exact opposite of the case. The law of God is not sinful. The law has a perfect purpose and a perfect power. In fact, Psalm 19.7 says the law of the Lord is what? Perfect, reviving the soul. And here in verse 7, Paul is saying that God's law is perfect. It revives the soul by revealing to the soul its imperfection. It points us to our sin like a magnifying glass. So Paul's defense of the law is a way for him to say that rather than the law being sinful, it has a right function. It reveals God's righteous standards by which it becomes a mirror, the law of God does, for mankind to see the sinfulness of his sin, leading to penitence and leading to salvation. This is no different than what Paul said in chapter 3, verse 20, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Or chapter 4 and verse 15, where there is no law, there is no transgression. You need the law to see your transgression. Chapter 5, verse 13, sin is not counted where there is no law. It's hard to consider your sin if a law doesn't define what is right and what is wrong. Now notice carefully in the rest of verse 7, Paul expands on this from his own experience. He says, for, now he's going to explain this even more, I um, would not have known it. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall 
not covet. So the law was pointing sin out to him. And one way it did that was by saying, thou shalt not covet. The 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, Exodus 20, 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, if you stop and think about this for a minute, that covetousness, the command not to covet, was the actual command that led to Paul's salvation because it led to him realizing that he was a sinner. That's difficult to really think about because almost the opposite would be the case. As a zealous Jew, a Pharisee, as he describes himself in Philippians 3, you would think that his self-righteous pride would have kept him from thinking that he was ever guilty of covetousness. Because Paul, we can hear him say to himself pre-conversion, what could I possibly lust for? I'm one of God's chosen. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a Pharisee. I'm part of the spiritual elite. I am blameless. It's impossible for me to lust. What could I possibly want that someone else has that I don't have that I really want that I shouldn't have? I have everything. I am blameless. I am God's gift to the Jews as a primary teacher in Pharisee, a rising star in Judaism. Yet amazingly, Paul says, it was lust, it was the command, thou shalt not covet, that helped him come to the end of himself on the Damascus road. And to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, as he says in Philippians 3 verse 9. And of course we can understand that, for how could he continue thinking... He could achieve a righteousness that comes from the law when in actual fact it was the law itself that revealed his unrighteousness in the form of coveting. And when the Spirit of God quickened his heart and convicted him of that sin, it led to his salvation. And I want to tell you this morning the same is true for us. God's law is not sinful. God's law is beneficial to us because God's law does not lie to us. It tells us the truth. It refuses to allow us to think that external obedience to outward standards can make us right with God while the inward ugliness of our hearts remains dormant. An inward ugliness that we all know that we possess. So without the law, we would be self-deceived and self-righteous, wouldn't we? Thinking that cleaning the outside of the cup is good enough. Meanwhile, internally, we're filthy with all manner of lustful and murderous thoughts and looking at our neighbor's possessions and thinking that we deserve them, that somehow this is unfair, that we don't have those gifts or that money or those possessions or that status or that prestige. But really, we're drinking out of a filthy cup that will kill us. And we need a helper. And the law is the helper. The law exposes the poison that we are drinking of self-deception. It allows us to acknowledge not only our outward sins, but also our inward corruption and to then fling ourselves onto Christ and to rest in Him, realizing that He perfectly fulfilled the law for us in our place. And that is what Paul is getting at. He said in chapter 5 and verse 20, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul says, let me give you some clarifying remarks about the law. 
Number one, it points us to our sin. Aren't you glad that the law of God was a helper in convicting you of how bad you really are? It would be so easy to think we're better than the next person and to compare ourselves with other people. The law of God refuses to allow us to do that. We are all equally corrupt. We are all equally depraved. And even the things we don't do outwardly, guess what? You and I want to do those things, don't we? And that reveals the depravity of our human nature. This led to Paul's salvation. The law of God pointed his sin out to him. So Paul's defending the law by clarifying, listen, it is not sinful because the law points us to our sin. It's the exact opposite. It's a helper. But Paul gives a second clarifying remark. Not only does the law point us to our sin, but number two, it provokes us in our sin. Verse 8, Paul is making it clear here that it's not the law that's sinful or causes us to sin. No, the fault lies with sin itself. Notice how he clarifies this, verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So Paul says it's sin that has taken advantage of the commandment, whichever one of the ten it may be. In this case, covetousness, thou shalt not covet, but it can be applied to any of the ten. Sin takes advantage of a commandment, and Paul says this then produced in me, speaking by experience, all kinds of covetousness. So this was widespread. This was a domino effect. There was a wide variety of rotten fruit. In Paul's heart, marked by covetousness. Sin, he is saying, used the law, thou shalt not covet, to provoke even more sin within him. The deeper he looked into this thing, the more sinful he saw that he was. And the more sinful he wanted to be, in a sense, because he realized what was forbidden to him. Now notice in verse 8, Paul is blaming sin, not the law. He says it was sin that seized an opportunity through the commandment or through the law. And I want you to underline the word opportunity. Aforme is the Greek word. It literally speaks about a starting point or a base of operations. This is a military word that speaks about a starting point to launch attacks, like a military base. Aforme, opportunity. Paul is saying that sin uses the law as an opportunity, as a starting point, to launch attacks on the soul. The demands of the law, sin takes advantage of to establish a foothold as an enemy to produce more sinful violations of the law. That's what Paul means when he says sin seized an opportunity through the commandment. And it produced in me all kinds of covetousness. I saw my sin more and more and more. And here is how sin takes advantage of the law to provoke more sin. This is the way it works. A kid might not be thinking about eating a cookie before dinner until his mother says, son, see those cookies in the cookie jar? Do not eat a cookie until after you eat your supper. Well, he might not have even thought he wanted a cookie until his mother told him that there was a cookie available. And once she told him it was available, the temptation set in and the lust and the coveting set in, which then can lead to full-blown sin. And don't think this just applies to kids. What about adults? You would not be tempted to speed on the highway 
and to push the envelope if there weren't speed limit signs. And we want to get as close to that speed limit as we can, to go as fast as we can without breaking the law. Well, Paul is saying since the time of Adam and Eve, humanity has always been tempted by forbidden fruit. And I told you at the beginning of my sermon that there was something I wanted to tell you that I couldn't find in any of the books here and had to go home to get. And here is the story. It comes from Augustine's book, The Confessions. And in this book, Augustine speaks about how he realized the sinfulness of his heart because as a teenager one day, he was with a rowdy group of kids and they all decided to steal some fruit. A forbidden fruit that was on pear trees. And Augustine stole some fruit with these kids and he said, I realized my sin was so wicked and I was such a wretch because I didn't even eat the pears. I gave them to the pigs. I stole the fruit just because I could and because it was forbidden. Paul is saying that's what sin does with all of us. It seizes an opportunity through the commandment to entice us. But notice how Paul concludes verse 8. Again, he's reinforcing his point about the good nature of the law, that sin takes advantage of the law to provoke more sin. But he clarifies it. He says, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. In other words, yes, of course it's a bad thing that sin would take advantage of the law. But the reality is, apart from the law... Sin lies dead. Again, the law is not the cause of sin. The law is set up in a manner to allow sin to use its commands to provoke more sin. Otherwise, Paul says, verse 8, sin lies dead. That is, sin is dead to us. We don't see the threat of sin. We don't see that sin damns us. The law allows sin to take advantage of its commandments because when we hear a command and instinctively want to disobey it, as Augustine did just for the purpose because we can do it, we see the sinfulness of our sin. But in such a case, the law is not at fault, Paul is saying. By allowing a bad thing to happen, a good thing can result. The law is not a culprit, sin is. Sin actually perverts the law's primary function of giving life and blessing. We read about this in the Old Testament. We read about this even in Genesis. To not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil meant that they would have eternal life and we would be eating of that fruit today. And it wouldn't be the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but the fruit from the tree of life for all of eternity. But sin perverts God's primary function of the law it reveals God's righteous standards it exposes our sin and as a result it produces and lures us to more sin as Paul says in verse 8 but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness but apart from the law sin lies dead Paul concludes if it wasn't for this occurring if sin hadn't been provoked in me more and more if it wasn't for the law of God allowing itself to be taken advantage of, sin would be dead to me. I wouldn't have an awareness of my own sin. So again, Paul is simply teaching what he taught in Galatians 3, that the law is a tutor to lead us to Christ by allowing sin to provoke us to sin more so we see the wickedness 
of our hearts. John Calvin says, and I quote, The law of God is the grammar of theology, which after carrying its scholars a short way, hands them over to faith in Christ. To put that another way, the law of God is like grammar school or elementary school. It prepares us to hand us off to receive a doctorate of faith, to receive full knowledge of who we truly are before God, sinful, and who God truly is, a holy God who is gracious and loving and kind and forgiving when we repent. And to graduate with a degree in the gospel requires you to go to the grammar school of the law to understand how bad you are. And so Paul's just defending the law, isn't he? He's giving some clarifying remarks about the law. He's told us that the law points us to our sin. Secondly, the law provokes us in our sin. But third, he says in verse 9, it pronounces us dead because of our sin. Notice the beginning of verse 9. Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law. This means that without the full reality of the law helping Paul see his sin, both its high standards and in allowing sin to twist its function to provoke more sin, Paul felt he was alive apart from that happening. That is, really living and enjoying life free from guilt. And isn't that true for everyone? There is a pleasure in sin. Otherwise, you wouldn't commit it, and I wouldn't commit it. There's pleasure in sin for a season, until convicted by the Holy Spirit, and then the cold winter reality of our deadness sets in. We all think we're really living when we're living in sin. We're really free. Actually, we're bound in our sins and trespasses. Paul says that I was once alive apart from the law. I felt like I was really living. But when, as verse 9 says, the commandment came, sin came alive. It came alive to him in a way it hadn't before. Because the more he sinned, the more he wanted to sin, and he began coveting in ways that he never thought that he would covet. And the more he did this, the more he was provoked to sin until finally he reached the point by God's grace in which he says, I died. That is to say, I gave up. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive. I realized I was a sinner. I realized sin was in my life, and I died. This means that all his even religious accomplishments were considered as rubbish to him. Philippians 3. He lost his identity as a religious person. I died. I was no longer who I was before. No longer who I thought I was. In my prestige, and my religiosity. He was not only not as righteous as he once thought he was, he wasn't righteous at all when compared to the law. In fact, he was unrighteous. Indeed, it was like he had died. Well, the law is like a coroner pronouncing that a death has taken place. Someone has to do it. And if a coroner does not pronounce that a death has taken place, or a doctor, or someone that's trying to revive a life, then deception sets in and the people around think that there's still life in the lungs and that is an evil, wicked thing. For a doctor to lead people to believe that their loved one is still alive. And I've seen many times in pastoral visitations when a diagnosis is given or when a death is pronounced that family members immediately are angered at the doctor or the hospital or the funeral director 
The coroner didn't kill anybody. The doctor didn't kill anybody. The funeral director didn't kill anybody. They are just there to help us understand the reality of the situation, that a death has taken place. And Paul realized that. He realized he was dead in his sin. You know, before his conversion, he was like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed in the temple, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. But after his conversion, he was more like the tax collector, wasn't he? It's as if he beat his breast, lifted his eyes to heaven, and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He had come to the end of himself. He was dead. Sin had killed him, and the law helped provoke that sin, being taken advantage of by sin itself, to get Paul to that reality. R.C. Sproul says this, and I quote, If we think back to our pre-conversion days, were we really all that overburdened by a sense of sin and guilt? Sproul says no, not until the Holy Spirit brought his conviction on us, quickened our consciences, made us alive to the law, did we feel for the first time the weight of our guilt. That is what drove us to Christ and gave us new life. So Paul says, you want to understand the law better, let me clarify. The law of God points us to our sin like a magnifying glass. The law of God provokes us in our sin, and the law of God pronounces us dead in our sin. And that is a good place to be. If you this morning recognize that you are a wretched, vile, depraved sinner, you are in a very, very good place before God. Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. You know why? Because the righteous can't repent. Because the righteous think that they're obedient to the law of God and God has somehow accepted them. So after some clarifying remarks about the law, it points us to our sin, it provokes us in our sin, it pronounces us dead in our sin, Paul then secondly moves to provide some concluding remarks about the law. He's going to bring this all together and referring back to what he said in verse 8 and reflecting on it and drawing a conclusion, notice what he says in verse 10. He says, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. In other words, the very commandment any one of them, but in Paul's case, it was thou shalt not covet. That very commandment that promised life proved instead to be death to me. He's saying that what he considered to be a path leading to eternal life through obedience to the law instead turned out to be the very opposite, a path leading to spiritual death. In other words, he found out that eternal life is not about achieving, it's about believing. It's about looking to Christ who fulfilled that law in our place. Now, I want you to notice verse 11. Paul says, For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. Principles in verse 11, taken together with principles in verse 8 and verse 9, reveal a process that occurred not only with Adam and Eve in the garden and with Paul, but with all of us. We'll begin back at verse 9. If you just go back there with me for a moment, Paul makes the statement, I was once alive apart from the law. 
Well, there is a sense in which that was true in the age of innocence prior to sin. Adam and Eve were alive for a period apart from law. They were truly alive, though. For us, we were born in our deadness and sins and trespasses. It only appears that we are alive. Until someone comes to us and tells us, here's the law of God, here are the standards of God. And that is why the law must be preached in any true presentation of the gospel. You need to be lost before you can get saved. You need to understand you're a sinner before you understand your need for a savior. So all this business about just preaching gospel and grace and love, without ever mentioning truth and ever mentioning the standards of God is a self-deceptive form of evangelism. But there's a second sort of parallel. Like Adam and Eve, once alive apart from the law, secondly, there was a time in which the commandment came. It hit home to us. Notice verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came... God did that with Adam and Eve. There was a time in which he told Adam, don't eat of this tree. There was a time in our life, and if it's like mine, growing up in the church as a covenant child, I was always aware of the law of God, but I wasn't always aware of the threat of the law of God until the Holy Spirit convicted me of that. And then notice the third thing. Mentioned in verse 8 and verse 10, sin then seized an opportunity through the commandment. So we're once alive apart from the law. Then the commandment comes. We feel the weight of it. Then sin seizes an opportunity through the commandment, just like the serpent, a created creature of God. He only took advantage of Adam and Eve after the law was given. You read that in Genesis chapter 3. The commandment came, the law was given, and that is when the serpent attacked. That is when Satan took what was good, the law of God, and perverted it. And what did that lead to? Number four, it led to deception. Notice verse 11, for sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me. Eve, of course, told God that, didn't she? The devil deceived me. We are deceived and lured by sin. Sin takes advantage or opportunity of the commandment, which provokes more sin because we don't want to hear, don't do that. That makes us want to do that thing that we're told not to do. And we're only partially deceived, especially as Christians. We know that sin has consequences, don't we? We know that sin dishonors God, but in the moment, it's easy to be deceived to think that I need immediate gratification, and if I don't get it, I'll go crazy. Paul says this is the process for all sinners. This is true with Adam and Eve. They, they were deceived. Sin took advantage of the law of God after the law of God came. Before the law, they were really living. And then the fifth thing, they began coveting. Genesis says it was desired to make one wise, that good fruit. They were deceived. And the end of verse 11 says, and through it killed me. This is Paul speaking, but applied back to Adam and Eve and applied forward to us, there's the parallel. We think we're really alive until we hear the commandment of God's law. 
And then sin takes advantage of that law, provokes more sin, and then we're deceived in thinking that sin will bring pleasure. We lust for more and covet for more. Until then we're killed. We come to the end of ourselves. We realize that all of sin and come short of the glory of God. We realize that the wages of sin is death. All mankind is the same. This is the process of sin leading to death. And the law is vitally involved. But, Paul changes gears here, equally true. Not only is God always the same, and we are always the same really, but God's law is always the same, holy and good. Notice how he defines it in verse 12. Paul concludes, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy. He says it twice there for emphasis, and righteous and good. Three words used to describe the law. Holy is used twice and righteous, and good. Paul's concluding remarks about the law leave us without ever making the accusation that there's anything wrong with the law of God, or that Paul was against the law of God, or that Christians aren't in any sense under the law of God. But what happens, Paul is telling us, when God's holy, righteous, and good law is given to his creatures is that we think we know better We think that God is a killjoy or that God is somehow unfair. And Paul is saying since his character is holy and righteous and good, and we know that to be true about God, so also is his law. The law of God was designed to bring life, but sin distorts that function to bring about an occasion for death. But even in this, we see the grace of God because the law is still a tutor to lead us to Christ that points us to our sin, it provokes us in our sin, it pronounces us dead because of our sin so that we come to the end of our play, the end of ourselves. And that's why when Paul gets to the end of this discussion, he says, look, the reality is the law is holy. It is holy and righteous and good. The problem is not the law. The problem is sin. The problem is the sinner. The problem is the sinner who does not want to be submissive to a holy God and indeed cannot be submissive because of our sin nature, which leads us only to one thing, and that is to Christ. When we're truly regenerated and convicted by the Holy Spirit, we look to find life not in the law, but in Christ, because we can't fulfill the law. And he fulfilled the law for us. So notice what Paul says in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? He's talking about the law of God, which he just said in verse 12 is good, holy, and righteous. Did that which is good, the law, bring death to me? Here it is again, strongest negative in the Greek, by no means. Meganoita. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. So sin took advantage of that which is good, the law, in order that sin, here's the sovereign purpose of God, might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. In other words, the law being taken advantage of was there for the purpose of not for us to come to the conclusion that the law is bad, but that sin used the law in a perverted way, in a bad way, to make a good result, and that is so that we saw the exceeding sinfulness of sin. We saw sin for what it really is, that sin might be shown to be sin, and that through the commandment, through the law, 
it might become sinful beyond measure, that there's no question about the fact where sin originates. It originates in our hearts. It originates from our sinful nature. It does not originate from the law of God itself because the law of God is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So Paul is defending the law of God here. And he's offered some clarifying remarks about the law of God. He's also provided some concluding remarks about the law of God. But now we need to close by offering some confusing remarks about the law. And the reason I say this is because we live in strange times. On the one hand, we live in the days of the judges when everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The law of man transcends the law of God. And that is true. But at the same time, people believe that more legislation will curb evil in society. And this stance actually betrays the additional claim of individual rights. So these are strange times. So we are faced with three problems, I think, that reveal mankind's confusion and lead to eternal judgment apart from the saving gospel. Three confusing ideas about the law. And the first is what I want to call the inward problem. The inward problem is when the heart says, I'm not as bad as the next guy. And by the way, this is not just a modern problem since mankind has always naturally measured himself against others, just like the Pharisee did with the tax collector in the temple. Nevertheless, this is not the proper measuring stick for ethics and morality because God doesn't grade on a curve. In our house, the heights of our children are measured several times each year to see how much they have grown. And we have actually used the same board placed against the wall to trace their growth. The old marks are not erased. The board has not been replaced. And in the same way, God's law can't be replaced. His standards are higher than man-made standards. They're higher than we could ever think we could grow into. Jesus said, you therefore are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So the law of man should not transcend divine law. Rather, divine commandments transcend whatever man-made standards we create in our hearts. So when we say, I'm not as bad as the next guy, we have just created our own law and our own standard. And by the way, we're without excuse, Romans 1.20, because Romans 2.14-16, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them, so that they are without excuse. We are without excuse because God has written his law in our hearts, and yet we take that law and pervert it because of sin and make our own law. This is an inward problem, and it's a major problem, but the inward problem manifests itself in society, doesn't it? Because society is made up of a bunch of wicked, bad-hearted individuals. So the outward problem is the society saying, well, it's your own life. You only have one. Live it the best way you think. But you would agree with me this morning that the principles of God's law are not subject to the shifting foundations of cultural or moral relativism. As Christians, we believe in moral absolutism, not moral relativism. And God's moral absolutes are the final say, not the ethical marks of society, not the so-called new morality. Society is not the final arbiter. 
in measuring man's morality. And we see this today, particularly in the social justice movement, particularly in wokeism, which basically says everyone's a racist, and particularly white European males or white European males or white males from European descent. And that even black people are racist when they don't take the side of the social justice warriors. This has infiltrated the church. And so now there's a new morality of what it means to be racist. And what it means to be a hater of other people. You're not allowed to tell other people the truth, which according to the Bible is actually loving them. Now you have to tell them what they want to hear because that's the new morality. That's the society. And people today make a big deal about individual rights and even this is happening when individual rights are being taken away. You can't say those words. You can't have those thoughts. You can't make that statement on Twitter. You will be canceled. So we're all about individual rights. Just let us be who we want to be. But the moment we try to live as individuals the way that we want to, according to Scripture, our rights are taken away. You know what this proves? It proves that man cannot live without law. He knows instinctively that law governs us. So he'll either live by God's law or new laws laid down by society, university professors, the elite government legislation. And when this happens, chaos and confusion ensue. And friends, that's exactly where we are. Not to mention confusion and chaos The follow-up of that is also the suppression of religious liberty because you can't believe what you want to believe if you can't say what you believe. How do you even live out your faith? But the inward and outward problems force us to deal with the upward problem. If the inward problem says I'm not as bad as the next guy and the outward problem is the society saying live the way you think is best because it's your life, then the upward problem is when God says, no, listen, here's the truth. You're obligated to obey my law, and when you don't, there will be hell to pay. There will be judgment. You say, really? Does God really speak that way? Listen, God is not a cosmic killjoy. His law flows from his holy character, and is good for mankind. Paul says in verse 12 that the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Its original function was to bring life. God has given to us his law. It has not been concealed. It's been revealed. He's made it very clear what it is. It's holy, it's righteous, and it's good. People today speak about, for example, the Supreme Court as if our lives depend on it. And in a sense, that's a valid concern because there will be different judgments made based upon the ratio of conservative and liberal appointees. But this is only temporally true. As you see, beloved, eternally speaking, there will be a final judgment. And God's Supreme Court is a cosmic tribunal with no opportunity for appeal. And He has made it very clear what the standards of his law are for the home, for the individual, for the church, for society, for government. So our only hope is to look to Christ, amen, in faith, realizing that he fulfilled the law for repentant sinners. We affirm with the Apostle Paul that the saving gospel frees us from our bondage to the law. 
And that those who confess their sin and look with faith to Christ are wedded to Christ in an eternal union. As Paul says earlier in chapter 7, that we may bear fruit for God. That the gospel frees us from the condemning power of the law so that we now serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the letter. That the law of God is written on our hearts. We love the law of God. Like the psalmist, we delight in the law of God. The law of God is not our foe any longer. It is our friend. We are not married to the law. We are married to Christ. But because Christ fulfilled the law, we love the law and want to honor God by obeying His law. And this is the path to sanctification. The law of God does not provide a power. The Spirit of God does. But the law of God is still the measuring stick of where we're at in our holiness. And any so-called Christian preacher that tells you otherwise is someone that simply doesn't want to tell you the truth. Well, we know God has a law. But here at our church, we speak about the love of God. We want to be encouraging to all of God's children. Well, then you're not preaching the gospel. Because you're not telling the truth. And you're a liar. But on the judgment day, Christ will serve as a defense attorney for all true believers. You know what he will say? He'll say, I obeyed the law for you. And on that day, you're not going to go, wait a second. Wait a second, God. You saw what I did down there on earth. You saw the good things that I did. Now, can I take just a little bit of credit here? No, you're going to say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for pleading the merits of your own blood. And I plead those merits with you. Because apart from Christ as our defense attorney, there is no hope. He is the great intercessor. He is the great redeemer. He is the great intercessor. He is the one who has fulfilled the law of God for us. So as Christians, we can smile when we speak about the law of God. You know why? We've been freed from its bondage. And not only that, but we actually enjoy having laws. Because we realize how sinful we are. And we realize that we want to honor God with our hearts, souls, minds, and strength. And the law of God doesn't provide power, but it is a measuring stick for the Christian. That the Spirit of God now uses in a positive way to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. This is Paul's defense of the law. And I want you to know this morning that we believe in the law of God. And we speak the law of God because above all, here at the church, we want you to understand this one truth. And that is that you are a sinner and that apart from repenting of your sin... You cannot have eternal life. And guess what? You will not repent of your sin if you think you're just a good little boy, good little girl, moral person, religious. You must come to the end of yourself like Paul did, and you must say, you know what? When sin came alive, I died. And now I've been humbled, and now you're a candidate for the kingdom of God. That is our prayer for you. Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful for your truth, there is a sense in which all of your word is your law. But then in particular, your moral law has been given to mankind as a means to lead us to Christ. We thank you for your law. We thank you that it points us to our sin. We thank you that it provokes us in our sin. We're thankful that it pronounces us dead in our sin. 
It doesn't lie to us. It doesn't confuse us. It's very clear in telling us that we are sinners, that we are dead in sins and trespasses. We thank you for this glorious reality because that allows us, Lord, to then look to Christ in faith and rest in him, not trusting in our achievements or our moral status, our obedience in any way, but relying completely upon your grace and upon your goodness. We thank you that you freed us from our bondage to the law. We are now married to Christ, your son. We're grateful for that. Holy Spirit, we are grateful also for your indwelling. The empowerment we have to now walk in a manner that will please you and serve you. Help us to do that. Help all your saints to do that for your glory. We thank you again for your word. Would you etch its truths upon our hearts and help us to live according to it for your glory. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.ChristReformedCC.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.PastorAndrewSmith.com.